Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. There's a quote from the American newspaper publisher, Joseph Pulitzer, that reporters often have pinned to their desks. I can't do the accent, so I asked my colleague Denise to read it out. So shall I let you lead in or I'll just start? I'll just start reading. Okay. There is not a crime. There is not a dodge. There is not a trick. There is not a swindle which does not live by secrecy. Get these things out in the open. Describe them. Attack them. Ridicule them in the press. And sooner or later, public opinion will sweep them away. Reporters like this quote, I think, because it captures their job in its purest form. Not as hacks scrabbling to meet a deadline, but instead as people who are out to uncover corruption and wrongdoing, speaking truth to power. And occasionally, a story comes along that's so big and so consequential that even non-journalists look at it and they feel the weight of what Pulitzer was saying in that quote. In the spring of 2009, just such a story rode up the escalators of the Telegraph's offices in central London, was carried into a side room and cautiously tipped out onto a desk. It didn't look like much, just a USB hard drive with a red case. But, lurking inside... Millions of receipts of expenses claims by all MPs. Mr Speaker. The Daily Telegraph has obtained them all. The need to recognise and understand how angry people are. We locked these guys in a room and we just said... Here's the disc. Work out, start going through it. I'm Pete Norton, and this is Expenses, a podcast about journalism, politics, and what it's like to bring a huge national secret into the light. The idea of expenses is quite simple for MPs. They need money to survive in two places. Firstly, in their constituency, they've got to be able to live there with their family and talk to around 80,000 people who live in the area and help them through all sorts of issues. That's Chris Hope, the Telegraph's chief political correspondent and one of the reporters who broke the expenses story a decade ago. And then, of course, during the week, for a few days, there must be in Parliament to vote on government bills, meet ministers and fly the flag for their local constituency. So they're required to have two homes, but, of course, most people only have one home. So what's fair? Well, what was seen to be fair, and is, and is still the case now, is they're given help to live in London, where their second home should be. And that's where the expenses system came in. So they were given... Um, This expenses system, giving MPs financial support to maintain a second home, dated back to the 1970s when Ted Heath was Prime Minister. I want to speak to you simply and plainly about the great... And in the beginning, it was all pretty easy to follow. MPs could claim a fairly modest allowance to help them rent a second home. No scandal there. But over the decades, hidden from public view by the secretive workings of the committees and offices in charge of it, the second home allowance kept on growing and the list of things MPs could claim for kept expanding. 
In the mid-1980s, under Margaret Thatcher, power and influence of this house it was decided that mortgage interest payments were allowable, meaning, crucially, that MPs could now start buying second homes in London rather than renting them. And by the time The Telegraph got hold of all their claims on that red hard drive in 2009, the annual figure for the second home's allowance was just a touch over £24,000. And the things politicians were claiming for on it had reached a surreal fever pitch. As well as mortgage interest, they were claiming for flat screen TVs, for furniture from upscale shops like Habitat and Heels, and for up to £400 of grocery shopping every month. They were claiming for dog food, for loo roll, for a trouser press, for having a ride-on lawnmower serviced, for having the hedge around a helipad trimmed. They were claiming for pretty much anything you can think of. And all this against the backdrop of the global financial crisis, which had brought recession to the UK in 2009, leaving households around the country with no choice but to rein in their own spending in order to stay afloat. More than a scoop, this thing had the dimensions of a national scandal. But it would take a steely resolve and hundreds upon hundreds of hours of reporting to bring it all to light. In this series, you'll hear the stories, some of them never told before, of the people who were tasked with pulling this off. You'll hear from our reporters, our editors and our cartoonist. You'll hear what it's like to uncover a receipt for a duck house in a stack of documents and how much sleep you get when you're facing down the entire political establishment and the strange, perhaps still unheeded lessons that the Expenses Saga has for Britain in 2019. And in this first episode, you're going to hear from the journalists who brought the story home in the first place. For some months, there'd been rumours of this disc uh, in circulation, and we'd seen various expense claims being leaked to some of our rival papers. That's Robert Winnett who was deputy political editor at The Telegraph in 2009. The Mail on Sunday ran a story about Jackie Smith. The Home Secretary Jackie Smith is under attack for claiming parliamentary expenses to cover the cost of adult movies watched by her husband. The couple and at the time I was, I was travelling around with the uh, press pack that follows the then Prime Minister Gordon Brown and everyone was talking about it and I remember actually we're in Chile, bizarrely enough, at an event and hearing that this disc did definitely exist and was being offered to newspapers and came came back from South America and sort of we, we put a lot of resource and time to try and track this thing down. Now, what we knew by then, there were, this information was being redacted by the House of Commons. That's Chris Hope again. Because there'd been a series of, of freedom of information requests by Heather Brook looking at a sample number of, of MP expenses. So they put these in and then the M- MPs eventually agreed reluctantly to produce the information and then they were going for a period of, of redacting them all in a room in Whitehall. So we knew this was going on, but we couldn't get hold of what was going on. And then when Rob picked up rumours of this, a disc was doing it, it, doing the rounds with information that was not changed at all, well, all our ears pricked up. Having made it known that The Telegraph was interested in the disc, the paper was eventually approached by an intermediary offering a meeting. And so, one Tuesday in late April 2009, Robert Winnett made his way to a wine bar in Embankment just around the corner from the House of Commons, where he sat down with a man called John Wick. Journalists meeting up with whistleblowers for the first time are usually prepared for a nervy encounter. People are often worried that they're being followed, they can make jumpy decisions or suddenly take flight, and they can also wildly overstate the importance of what they're offering. But Wick was a picture of composure, a solid-looking man in his mid-50s, 
with a steady gaze, a firm handshake, and a neatly tailored pinstripe suit. He could easily have passed for a City of London fund manager or a QC. In fact, he was a former SAS officer who was now working in corporate risk management, a job in which he helped his clients to work in dangerous environments around the world. He told Wynette that he was representing people who had access to the last five years of MPs' uncensored expense claims and who wanted to expose what they saw as a profoundly corrupt system. He had two stipulations. One was that they wanted whoever took the disc to cover every single MP, regardless of political party. In other words, this couldn't be a partisan job only picking on select politicians. It had to confront the whole system. Secondly, he was insistent that as part of the deal, money should be put aside for the sources of this information, who were taking significant risks both professionally and personally by bringing it to light. Wynette thanked Wick and took this information back to his bosses at the paper, who very quickly agreed to the terms and began to put together a contract. Retrospectively, this seems like such an obvious thing to do, the journalistic equivalent of signing the Beatles or buying the publishing rights to Harry Potter. But other papers had been approached by John Wick and given the same opportunity that he gave the Telegraph and had turned it down, whether because they weren't willing to cover all 650 MPs, as the source wanted, or because they felt that the risks or the costs of taking on such a story were just too great. The truth was that at this moment, the Telegraph was taking a jump firmly into the unknown, and no one at the paper had any idea of how it was going to play out. The next step was to actually get the disc itself, and so, a week after that meeting at the wine bar, and with the terms agreed, John Wick made his way to the Telegraph's offices above Victoria Station, signed a contract, and tipped that small red hard drive from a padded envelope out onto a desk. It's about the size of, of your palm, or with your fingers outstretched, about four inches by, by two and a half inches, and it's red, and it's about uh, half an inch to an inch thick. And it's amazing to think there's 1.2 million documents on this, um, in this small thing. So we still describe this as a disc, although I'm not sure that is actually accurate. It's a red, it is a detachable hard drive. Is that all we just call right. it now? So when I remember this arrived in the office uh, one day in exactly this form, and I remember the first thing was looking at it, as I'm doing now, and thinking, what the hell do we do with this? Because none of us have the technical expertise. We were expecting a CD-ROM or I don't know what existed then, a cassette yeah. or something to arrive. And um, uh, we didn't actually know what to do with it. So we actually actually get the head of IT who was off to pick up his kids from school to come back to the office and show us how to actually plug it in <laughs> and to read it, um, which we then did. And um, we made several copies of it. And we then very quickly had to form a, form a team of reporters uh, who were sort of sworn to secrecy and locked in this room in the corner of an office to start going through all the information that was yeah. contained on this. To begin with, this team was made up of 10 journalists, a carefully balanced mixture of veteran reporters whose experience would help to guide and shape the investigation and younger recruits whose energy and hunger could help to drive it along. And after receiving the disc in the final days of April... They had a week in which to secretly pick through its contents, start piecing together stories and figure out if they'd be able to begin publishing in early May. If they got to the end of the week and weren't confident they could proceed, they'd have to return the disc to Wick and abandon the whole story. So uh, each morning we'd log on, on on laptops which were disconnected from the internet because the big concern from the very beginning, which Robin, Arthur Wynne Davis, the lawyer, 
would hammer into us that information on here could not leak onto the internet because the information we were able to look at is the personal bank details, um, a, a credit card details, mortgage account details of every single MP, including the Prime Minister. And if that information had got out, it would have been really serious uh, reputationally for Telegraph. If you open up this disc, what you find is a set of 650 folders, each one labelled with an MP's name and listed by their forename in alphabetical order, starting at Adam Afriya and going right the way down to Yvette Cooper. Inside each named folder, bear with me, is another set of folders, one for each of the accounting periods that were covered by the leak. And inside these, you get to the interesting stuff. PDFs of their entire expense claims for the year in question. Each PDF is made up of dozens of pages, sometimes over a hundred, of scanned documents. Handwritten forms, photocopied receipts, council tax bills, mortgage interest statements, utility bills, and letters between the MP and the office in charge of processing expense claims. One thing I noticed, looking through them with Robert and Chris, ten years later, is how laborious it is to actually navigate within the files. Because they're scans of printed and handwritten papers rather than text files or spreadsheets, you can't just hit Control-F and search for, I don't know, Plasma TV. And the only way we could find anything out was literally by pushing the arrows on the computer. You'd scroll down through the information and just try and see anything which, which, which struck you as, as abnormal or different. It's interesting looking at it as well, just how chaotic it is, because a lot of it's handwritten, there's scribbles all over these forms, there are people trying to explain why they're... And then we were looking at an, a, an MP here who's trying to claim for a front door to be renovated, and there's all sorts of marks all over it about what was necessary and what paint they wanted, and, and reporters had to read all this stuff and work out what the hell it was all about. There was a system where different reporters, we sort of divided up MPs between different reporters, so myself and Rosa... That's Rosa Prince, who was then a young parliamentary reporter at The Telegraph. Looked at the cabinet, another team looked at the shadow cabinet, and then we started to sort of build a picture of the, the basic claims, i.e. how much people were claiming for different things, but then we looked at other documents like Companies House, the Land Registry, other public records, and we were trying to put together a picture of where people were living, what they were claiming for, how much money they'd paid for houses in some cases, how much money they'd made from selling houses, um, and just trying to work out how the whole system worked, because there, there were whole strands to it which we just didn't understand when we started looking at it. Over the following days, hidden away in their increasingly untidy side office, the reporters worked determinedly to unpick these strands and wrote up their findings to be fact-checked by other members of the team and scrutinised by the paper's legal department. With this body of work secretly building up, and with the details behind the story seeming to check out, the paper's then-editor, Will Lewis, made his boldest decision yet. They'd open the doors and start to publish. The plan was that their first stories, a series of revelations about Gordon Brown's cabinet, would be printed on Friday, May the 8th, and then in the following days, they'd move their focus outward, across junior ministers, and then on to the other parties. But before they could complete the first day's stories and send them off to press, one final element was needed. They had to do what's known in the trade as a front-up, which is where you write to the people who you're about to cover and ask them for comment. So, at lunchtime on Thursday the 7th of May, a series of formal letters were dispatched, via email, to the Prime Minister and members of the Labour Cabinet, giving them the details of what the Telegraph had uncovered about them and asking if they wished to respond. The stories included details of the multiple hotels and properties that Community Secretary Hazel Blears had been claiming for in a single year, and the revelation that the minister in charge of the criminal justice system, Jack Straw, 
had accidentally overclaimed for his council tax bill by 50%. No one could escape the seriousness of these allegations, and as the clock ticked, the tension among the assembled reporters, editors, and lawyers rose. Would the ministers threaten legal action and try and serve the paper with an injunction? Would government spin doctors seize upon some inaccuracy that they'd all missed? Or was there a chance that the whole thing, the whistleblower, the disc, all the files, had been a giant hoax? And then, one of their inboxes pinged, and a reply came in. We'll hear what it was, right after this. Hi, I'm Danielle, and I'm the video planning editor here at The Telegraph. For the last three months, I've been working on a documentary film about the expenses scandal. I've interviewed dozens of journalists, politicians and commentators, immersed myself in the political climate of 2009 and studied painful hours of MPs trying to defend their expenses on camera. So if you're enjoying this podcast and are interested in seeing some of the characters and events that it describes on screen, maybe you just want to learn how many toilet seats John Prescott claimed for or which MP had a weakness for ginger crinkle biscuits, then head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash expenses to watch or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. I remember it was about 2.34pm on that Thursday, the um, 7th of May, when Jack Straw confirmed to you by email, Rob, didn't he, saying that actually I know, but there was a problem with the council tax and he'd paid money back or something. Absolutely, and that was the very moment we realised that this was it wasn't the greatest hoax of all times, but it was actually a, a genuine document. Because we've been working in complete secrecy from our family members, from colleagues at the office. We were going to this room and sitting there, getting hot and sweaty and eating pizza and staying late at night. But we had no actual, actual certainty that what we were looking at was a genuine thing. It could be a massive hoax. And, um, and that was always the, the lingering concern until that Jack Straw confirmation came back. With that concern done away with, the paper was able to publish beginning an unprecedented six-week-long string of front-page exclusives as the disc yielded scoop after scoop, throwing Parliament into disarray and dominating the headlines way beyond the newspaper. Tonight at 10, the expense claims of several Cabinet ministers are revealed in detail. Good morning and welcome. More awful stories of MPs' expenses dodges today. From across the British political spectrum have been claiming for all kinds of everyday items. Which embarrassing leak is proving to be expensive? <laughs> oh, what a week. Oh, oh, excessive de certains parlementaires, mais également de ministres. Et cette fois, el escándalo sobre los excesos de los gastos de los parlamentarios que provocó la dimisión de varios legisladores. Erst Hazel Blies, Ressortchefin für Kommunales. Tonight, 20 days into the expenses scandal, Labour takes its first tension. Before we get onto the effect that all of this had on Westminster and on the country. I wanted to focus on some of the specifics of what the reporters unearthed. Because, as with any great piece of journalism, the devil is in the detail. And working away in the bunker day after day, the reporters began to pick up on some particularly interesting details. They charted patterns of behaviour that were being repeated by numerous MPs, illuminating a more systematic exploitation of the rules. One of the most common of these, the reporters noticed, was for an MP to exploit the lax way in which the allowance system was enforced and use it as a way to boost the value of their own property on the public dime. So the key thing was moving the second home allowance around different properties and then then draining the allowance and spending it on the property... To do um, it up. To do it up. 
I said it's called, it's like flipping, like in the city when you flipped debt from one company to, the, to, to another company. Uh, private equity firms call it flipping. So we wrote flipping equals um, moving allowance from one property to the next. And there was more. Then we had property ladder, which is people sort of working their way up through bigger and bigger properties and making money on the way. Yeah, we call one council tax. That was an MP's claim about their full rate of council tax on second homes, paid for by a taxpayer, and then claim for a discounted rate on their other property to make a bit of money that way. And this is a good one we worked it out, March Madness, which is when uh, we suddenly realised that the deadline was in April, and so they'd all head to John Lewis or department stores throughout March and stock up on the new TVs and three-piece suites and all the rest of it. Last-minute repairs were when an MP was standing down from Parliament and knew he had to get rid of his or her allowance very quickly to splurge money on their property. And the capital gains tax avoiders who uh, played fast and loose with the tax system to avoid paying tax on, when selling on these second homes. There were quite a few claimers for the wrong address. That was when an MP nominates their family home as their second home so the taxpayer ends up footing the large bills there rather than on a smaller home that they rarely use in London. Uh, and then it's sort of a twist on the March Madness is the long-distance shoppers. So these are people who we noticed were ostensibly buying things for their small second homes or their flats in London, but then these large household goods we could see from the receipts were actually being delivered to their main home, begging the question about were they really for their main home rather than the second home. The ninth uh, idea we had was maxing out, where MPs would claim uh, just below um, a fig- the figure at which they needed to offer receipts, which, which then was £250. So lots of things were coming in at 249 just below the number. And then one of the other loopholes in the system is that uh, MPs could claim £400 a month in food without providing any receipts at all. So we uh, nicknamed this group the binge eaters, who just every month claim their 400 quid and uh, presumably stuck it straight in their pocket. And particularly that was that was the case in in August. We we saw it in September when Parliament wasn't sitting. And don't forget, all this money had to be spent to support their work as MPs. So any any any, any ideas when they weren't doing that became a story for us. As these revelations came to light, events outside the paper began to take hold. There was a public outcry. Politicians on both sides of the aisle were resigning or being asked to stand down. The leaders of both parties were scrambling to position themselves as the right men to lead Westminster through a period of much-needed reform. But one thing was missing. The story was lacking an image, something so vivid that even ten years later, people who have forgotten everything else about expenses can still bring it to mind. And one day, a reporter happened upon it, hidden in a stack of receipts. Um, I remember vividly um, when the, the, one of the... the thing which almost defined the, the whole scandal uh, was his claim for a duck house by an MP called Sir Peter Vigors. And in fact, we've got his expenses up, up in front of us, Rob, haven't we? Yeah, it's incredible to look at it now. He filled in all, all of his, like many did, all of his uh, forms by hand. Um, and then my colleague Nick Allen, who now works at Telegraph out in America, was just scrolling through. Um, and I've just lost the bloody thing. <laughs> he suddenly said... It's so easy to miss because basically it was a, a page of handwriting um, put in by Vigors, and you could easily not have seen it. But under the like, words garden design, he'd written pond feature. Um, and then it, it was £1,645, mark not allowable. Um, it wasn't clear what a pond feature was. And Nick carried on going through um, this long document. And, this, and we're talking about nearly 100 um uh, PDFs here, just scrolling through to page 82, and there it was, Hatesbury Bird Pavilions, 
And it, it turned out that Peter Figures had ordered and claimed for, from the taxpayer, a duck house. And because it was the early days of Google Earth, we were able to look up um, Sir Peter's home address and then zoom in on his home. And there, in the middle of a pond on an island, was a square duck house. I remember vividly shouting, you can see it from space. For the record, Sir Peter Vigors was never actually reimbursed by the taxpayer for his pond feature. Even by the generous standards of the fees office, bespoke housing for wildfowl was perceived to be stretching the limit somewhat. Still, the fact that he'd seen fit to claim for it in the first place, and that it was such a perfect symbol of unnecessary expense, I'll just repeat it again, a floating house for ducks to live inside, cemented the duck house as the mascot of the story. And to cast ahead for a moment, in the next episode of Expenses, we'll be talking to The Telegraph's front-page cartoonist, Matt, about his own eureka moment when coming up with duck house jokes. These moments of levity, expense claims that were impossible not to laugh at, brought some welcome comic relief for both the reporters pulling 12-hour days in front of their screens and for our readers unfolding the paper each morning to find out what the latest twist in the saga was. Because some of what happened was very unhappy indeed. So one one of the most meticulous um, researchers we had was uh, Holly Watts, um, and she had begun building up a, a database of where every every property that every MP was claiming for and cross-referencing that with the land registry data for those properties, which is a, a public register of every property in the UK and the mortgages and so on. And she, and she noticed or began to notice that for a few um, backbench MPs, they they were claiming for mortgage costs for properties where there was no mortgage, which became known as the phantom mortgage, um, which looked very odd, should we say, at the time. How did she figure out there was no mortgage? There wasn't a mortgage receipt in the... In yeah, the... so the, the, she, the, she could see from the expense claim they were claiming for a mortgage every month, but she could see from the land registry document that there was no mortgage on that property either because there never was a mortgage or because it had been paid paid off. We didn't really know whether that was just a mistake in one of the one of the records, but then I think the first person that she contacted in that situation was a was a, a minister called Elliot Morley or a former minister called Elliot Morley, and I remember her saying the shock in his voice when she phoned and it just reinforced the idea that there was something very very wrong with that claim, and you know we now subsequently know she then uh, wrote the story and. Um, there was then a criminal investigation into Elliot Morley and he subsequently went to prison. In the end, as a result of the Telegraph's reporting, six politicians, including Elliot Morley, were convicted of fraudulently claiming for expenses. All of them spent time in prison. The story brought about profound changes in Westminster too, In 2009, just months after The Telegraph started publishing, a new body, the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority, IPSA for short, was created and given complete oversight over MPs' salaries and expenses. IPSA ruled that MPs could no longer claim for cleaning and gardening expenses and set a limit of £1,450 a month with which MPs could rent a second home. Unsurprisingly, buying a property with a mortgage underwritten by the state and then doing it up using the second home's allowance was no longer allowed. There was also an exhaustive independent inquiry into MPs' second home expenses, led by a retired and well-respected civil servant called Sir Thomas Legg. 
He found that 392 MPs, 52% of those who had served, had made claims that overstepped the rules and recommended repayments by these MPs to the Treasury that totaled £1.3 million. So the public purse got at least some of its money back. In Chris Hope's view, this all contributed to an improvement in the way MPs addressed their work following the scandal. I think it forced MPs to be more in touch with the people who are paying their salaries, to be more alert to to um, uh, taxpayers and the fact that this is, that this is taxpayers' money and, and not their money. And I think it, it just was a real corrective to people who assume they could have a seat for life and then get a knighthood. I mean, if it was showing them that that isn't the case, it did um, result in, <clears throat> I think, the biggest clear-out ever of MPs in an election in 2010. <clears throat> a whole new group of, people, of MPs came in who, are, who, are, who remembered the, the expenses scandal, saw the, the mistakes that the MPs have made by assuming they can get away with this, and it has, it has made politics, I think, more honest and more, more open. But there's another side to the expenses fallout that may have been considerably less positive for the political class and more worrying for democracy in general. Because while working practices within Westminster may have improved, if you look at surveys of the British public's trust in politicians over the last 25 years, you'll see that the numbers took a hit in 2009 that they still haven't recovered from. However fair it was to the 48% of MPs who hadn't been doing anything wrong. The expenses scandal delivered a heavy blow to a system that was already weakened by outside events. A lot of people, I think, rightly drew the conclusion that the anger people felt over expenses was as a result of the financial crisis. I think you can take that expenses, the referendum, Brexit, as the kind of sweep of, you know, popular anger at the establishment. And I think, you know, MPs' expenses should have been a wake-up call for MPs, and at the time they realised that, but they quickly went back to their old ways and we're sort of seeing a new phase of it now today, I think. Expenses is produced by me, Pete Norton, with Theodora Leloudis. Original music and sound design by Elliot Lampitt. We're mixed by David Crackles. Special thanks on this episode to Andy McKenzie, Ryan Dilley, Gillian Reynolds and Denise Parkinson. And head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash expenses to get the full story. There's also a link to that in the show notes. If you're still listening here, then maybe you really like this podcast. And if you do, please consider taking a minute to leave a review and a star rating for us on iTunes. It might seem trivial, but believe it or not, it can really help other people to find the show. We'll be back in a week to find the funny side of the scandal with Matt the cartoonist. See you then. I don't think I'll ever work on a story as big as this in my life again. I want to, though. I'm very confident that Chris will work on a story that's as big as this in his lifetime. But yeah, so I think it's going to be hard, a hard one to beat. But um, we live in hope. And uh, if anyone else has got a disc with a million pages they'd like to share with us, we're always open for business. It's a perfect point at which to end. <laughs> Thanks Brilliant. very much. Brilliant.